nature versus nurture on parenting. Nature matters a lot. The overall effect of the environment is pretty small. Maybe one parenting decision, the most important, and that's where they raise their kids. Romance, it's a competitive market and you're competing with 95% of people for mates. It turned out that the predictive power was surprisingly low in predicting romantic happiness. A good short-term friend tells you what you want to hear, but a good long-term friend tells you uncomfortable truths. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Okay, friends, you are in for a treat with today's episode. It is a super fun one. I love when I get to do episodes that are not all about diet and health and wellness and physical things like that, but instead about hacking your life. Seth Stevens, David Owitz's work is honestly just fascinating. I learned so much reading his book, and we dive so deep into many topics in today's episode, including things like like racism in dating, what actually makes us happy, the role of quantified self-data, whether or not you can fool yourself, how physical appearance affects success, whether or not sports performance is genetic, how parenting choices affect children, over versus underestimated values and people for dating, whether or not alcohol actually makes you happy, you may be surprised, and so much more. I cannot wait to hear what you guys think. Let me know what you think in my Facebook group. I have biohackers, intermittent fasting, plus real foods, plus life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then check out my Instagram. Also find the Friday announcement post there. And again, comment to enter to win something that I love. There will be a full transcript in the show notes, as well as links to everything that we talk about. That will be at melanieavalon.com slash don't trust your gut. If you are enjoying the show, the one way you can truly, truly support it is to subscribe and or write a brief review in Apple Podcasts. It helps so much more than most people realize. So thank you so much in advance for that. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you are currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, 
they are not one ingredient, there is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or algae and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with. And to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body. So it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque. It can help alleviate pain and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MDLogic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash MDLogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, 
and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Seth Stevens, David Owitz. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. So the backstory on today's conversation, if you listened to the interview that I did with John Levy for his book, You're Invited, that was a really fun and fascinating interview because it went into a lot of topics, not so much health related, but more social related and why we do the things we do and how we're connected to people. And John connected me appropriately enough to his friend, Seth Stevens Davidowitz, who is a New York Times bestseller. I was familiar with his first book, which was called Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are. But Seth had a newer book coming out called Don't Trust Your Gut Using Data. I can never decide if it's data or data, but using data to get what you really want in life. And just seeing the title, I was immediately very excited about the concept. So obviously it was immediate. Yes. And then I read the book and this, cause I read a lot of books for this show. And this was one of those books where I just so thoroughly enjoyed the experience of reading it. Like literally it's just a collection of fascinating information about why we do what we do and ultimately how we can potentially get what we want in everything in life. So happiness, romance, our careers, sports, it's fascinating. There's so much information. I have so many questions. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this conversation. So Seth, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Melanie. So to start things off, well, we were talking right before this about how you are you know, connected to a lot of different social circles. I'm super curious your backstory. So like growing up, when did you become interested in data and information and figuring out like why people do what they do and what they're going to do? 
How did that happen? My life has been totally, as far as I can tell, just like a lot of random steps that I don't totally understand. I majored in philosophy in college, like which I think is only loosely, very, very loosely connected to what I now do. As I talk about my book, I wanted to be a professional athlete when I was a kid. That was like all I really wanted, but I had basically no no athletic talent. <laughs> so, but I think I've always been interested in people. And yeah, I've always been interested in numbers and math, and I've always been interested in writing. So kind of when I, when I did my first book, Everybody Lies, kind of all that came together, these interests I had, and then same with Don't Trust Your Gut. So I don't know, it's, it, it's felt very random in my career. People always ask me for advice, and I kind of don't know what to tell people. Because, well, first, I wrote a whole book of advice, so I tell them to just read the book. But also, I feel like my life is not... It's an anecdote, not data. And for all I know, like all the things I did were, you know, I just got probably lucky a few times. So I don't know. So you just touched on a lot of keywords that I actually had questions about. So that's perfect. Like anecdotes, data, random, luck. I mean, they're like filtered all throughout everything that you just said. So I have this huge haunting question, just using data and math to predict everything, can it predict everything? What can it not predict? And then a, a broader question, which actually might be a philosophical, so we can just tie that into: if it does predict things, why? Is there like a universal thing to all of humans that makes these things manifest predictably, or is every single thing unique to that topic for why it can be predictable? Yeah. Well, so the answer to your first question is no. Data can't predict everything. But I think it's interesting and useful, the ways in which data fails and the places in which data fails. So I talk in the book about this study by Samantha Joel and a bunch of other scientists trying to predict romantic happiness. And they had this amazing data set that more than 11,000 couples, and they were trying to predict, you know, they had everything you could think to measure on them, you know, their demographics, background, education, religion, race, their values, their beliefs about parenting, their hobbies, their interests, their sexual tastes, just this huge, the holy grail of relationship data sets. And they used advanced machine learning techniques to try to predict romantic happiness. And they found that it's, and I'm like, this is amazing. This is going to answer like the question, one of the biggest questions everybody has in life, what should I look for in a partner? And if you know, they throw the, this data and the machine learning models, everybody can just then, you know, when they're in a relationship, put their data in this model and the algorithm and tell them stay or go. And this is going to transform everything. And it turned out that the predictive power was surprisingly low in predicting romantic happiness, and particularly predicting changes in romantic happiness. It's very, very hard to predict whether a relationship is going to get better or worse over time, knowing everything you can possibly know about two human beings in that relationship. But I think there's something profound in the difficulty of predicting romantic happiness and changing romantic happiness, because a lot of us think we can make these predictions. So a lot of us stay in really, really bad relationships. You know, we're unhappy now, but on paper, we should be happy. So this ha kind of has to work or we make the reverse decision. I'm happy now, but there are too many red flags. This is too weird. We're too different. This isn't a long-term, this isn't the stuff of a long-term serious relationship. And I think the lack of predictive power in relationships 
tells us that we're making a mistake. Basically, the only thing that predicts future romantic happiness is current romantic happiness. So all of us should just kind of go with how we're feeling in a relationship and not think too much about traits that we share or don't share with our partner. Okay. So if we're applying that to like the red flags concept, would that mean that if it's a red flag that feels like a red flag, like emotionally it feels off, then you should go with that. But if it is a red flag just by like what other people would say is a red flag, then maybe you don't have to like worry about that as much. Yeah, exactly. So an example is if I'm in a relationship and I'm really, really happy, but we have different political views and we come from very different families or maybe we're even, we have different religious backgrounds, but, but I'm, I'm happy, you know, the person that my partner makes me feel good, then don't worry about what you, those seeming red flags, because the data says that they're not, that none of these things seem to have much predictive power down the road. Yeah. And again, and I think to the even more important is the reverse situation that probably many of us either have been there or know someone who's been there where two people just look so good on paper, but they're, they're not really happy. And I think a lot of us stay in such relationships way too long. Does that mean like if you go on a first date and you're not feeling it like right away, you should abandon ship? I think that it might take, I think give it a little longer than a first date. You know, the study Usually it's people are ready in relationships for a, a decent amount of time. So I, I don't think you can use this right away necessarily on a first date. But definitely if you're in a relationship for a couple months, then you want to just pay attention to whether you're happy with that person or unhappy with that person. Don't pay attention to anything else. So just with gathering this data, before dating apps, how would they gather this? Yeah. So before dating apps, there were these studies, kind of what predicts what makes someone attractive. And it was basically just asking people, but that gets into the point of my first book, Everybody Lies, which is that people lie when you ask them questions on sensitive topics, such as what they're attracted to. Either they're lying consciously to you or they're lying to themselves. So, you know, if you ask people in a survey, what are you looking for in a mate? You know, the number one answer will be someone nice, someone kind. Right near the bottom will be someone really attractive or someone rich. So it's a very misleading as far as telling us what people are actually looking for. And, you know, the data from dating apps uh, is more, I think, revealing and a little dark, depressing, because people are more superficial than they sometimes say. On just about on a lot of dimensions, everything from physical attractiveness and height to race, there's a lot of prejudice in online dating that's not always talked about. This is a huge question I have, and I don't know how to phrase it, but I've been thinking about it while reading that whole chapter. So like we're using the word shallow to define these characteristics that we're attracted to, but like the root of attraction, like from an evolutionary perspective, I'm assuming it goes beyond our, you know, prefrontal cortex and has to do with who might ultimately be the best mate for us. So how do we judge certain qualities as shallow or not. Like I think on the surface, people might say, oh, physical attraction is shallow because that's just looks. But you could also see it as that's like something very, you know, evolutionarily driven that this person might actually be a better physical compatibility match for you. And then there might be something like intelligence and that could be 
I feel like we don't say like it's shallow to well, maybe some people do, but to go after somebody intelligent, but that is also in a way just a biomarker of social or, you know, intellectual fitness. So, well, I guess then there's character traits like kindness and compassion. Maybe it's not shallow to want that, but maybe that has an evolutionary spin. I guess how do we how do we judge? I think there are a couple points that are important to keep in mind. One is that fi- there is at least some evidence that physical attractiveness Physical attraction can change over time. I talk about a study in the book where they ask people at the beginning, they ask college students at the beginning of class, who do you find the most attractive? And everyone kind of agrees it's people who have qualities that from an evolutionary perspective may suggest greater health, like symmetry of their faces. But then at the end of the class, they ask the same people who's the most attractive and the answers diverge because people start spending time with each other and some of the people that you know initially thought wow they're really hot well you actually don't connect with them you're gonna find them less attractive and people who you didn't think were that attractive you spend a lot of time with them you do connect with them you find them more attractive so it is important to keep in mind that physical attractiveness can grow or shrink over time and then an open question in my mind before seeing the data was does physical attractiveness correlate with long-term relationship satisfaction, since that's what a lot of us are after when we're searching for a mate. There's obviously difference if we're not looking for just a short fling, but if we're looking for a long-term mate, we want to know what traits are most predictive of long-term happiness. And it could be if you looked at the data that people who end up with conventionally beautiful people end up happier. Maybe they have you know better sex lives or better social lives. And this really is an you know, important predictor of long-term happiness. But if you look at the data, it seems to have just about no correlation with long-term romantic satisfaction. You know, people who end up with, I guess, con- conventionally mo- the most attractive people don't report that they're happier in the relationship than people who end up with less conventionally attractive people. So I think it is important to keep in mind that wherever these desires are coming from, and I agree some of it is probably evolutionarily driven, you know, if we're trying to maximize our long-term romantic happiness, we are being tricked to some extent by some of these qualities. So, you know, I think it's it's just important to keep that keep that in mind that you're being tricked. And, you know, another thing I talk about in the book is, you know, the dating romance is a market and it's a competitive market. And, you, you know, you're, if you're heterosexual and you, you're competing with, 95% of people who share of the same gender for mates. And you know, the fact that everybody is after that, that so many people are drawn to these qualities like conventional attractiveness, you know, height in males, certain sexy occupations. It means that the, these people are going to be much more difficult to get dates with, let alone to be in a relationship with. So, you know, I think a lot of people are perpetually single are trying and failing to date beautiful people. That's that's one of my diagnoses. But, you know, I give people these advice. I told some of my friends, I'm like, you know, yeah, the key to dating is, you know, care less about beauty and hotness. And all of them are like, yeah, I'm not listening to you. I don't care. So this is, you know, hard, hard advice to, to follow. And, you know, if I'm being honest in my own dating life, to be fair, I met my uh, girlfriend, long, long-term partner, before I had dove into this research and I was basically attracted, you know, immediately drawn to her because I thought she was really hot. So whether people actually follow this advice or not, 
I, I think I think it is important to keep in mind that we're all being tricked a little bit in the in that the qualities that make us most likely to swipe right are not necessarily the qualities that lead to long-term happiness. It's funny to hear you say that because I was wondering how the advice would land on people because you know you did have the sections about maybe you would have more success with long-term happiness and even just making a match if you go for these undervalued qualities in people. But then I feel like the the like happy medium solution that you provided was turning it into a numbers game. Like basically if you just ask out a lot of people, then the odds go up of making an, a match with somebody who might fall into your bucket of what you were hoping for with the attractive label. It's so interesting. Do you know if there's data on age differences in relationships, age gaps? I'm asking for personal. I've always dated older, so I'm wondering about that. Yeah, it's a moderate predictor. I Remembering from the Samantha Joel study, which I don't, I'd have to look at it again. It wasn't like a zero predictor, like attractiveness and height. It was more of a predictor where I think uh, big age gaps are, are negative predictors of lasting relationships. But yeah, I think you know, there also is obviously evidence that age plays a big role in desirability in online dating as well. Younger for women and older for yeah, men kind of men kind of hit their peak in their mid forties according to the data, and women hit their peak very very early. But yeah, I don't know, which is I guess another superficial trait that people care too much about. Like I feel like there's like reasons behind it like that we're not consciously aware of just as far as I guess like for age for a man it would symbolize like security and finances and and for women it would be reproductive ability maybe yeah well someone I was on a date with once said that all men think they're going to be most attractive like they just want to be patient wait until they hit their 40s because then everyone will be into them but her hypothesis which I haven't seen data on but it was interesting was that men actually, they basically have their 20s and 30s to prove themselves. And then the 40s, they either prove themselves or they prove that they couldn't do it. So there's actually more variance. So, you know, yeah, if you're 40 something and you sold, you know, five businesses and are worth $100 million, you're going to do really well. If you're 40 something and you haven't had a job and are addicted to drugs and play video games all day, you're going to do even worse than you did when you were 30 and at least you had some potential. So, but, but I think on average men do get a little boost, you know, in their forties. Although I think it's, it's, it's not necessarily, if you actually just go based on pure looks, I think men and women both are are most attractive in their youth, in their twenties. So I think, you know, men also, if you look at something like, you know, men feature in pornography videos or various other studies, they're most likely to be in their early 20s as well, or mid 20s as well. So it's not like women who are swiping right on 45 year old men are like, wow, these guys are so hot. It's more like these guys could make, I guess, reliable fathers. You had a lot on the male jobs that women are attracted to, but I don't think there was any data on female career. Well, because the study suggested that It doesn't matter. That's what I thought the answer was. So it's basically not statistically significant that women in all different jobs are equally attractive to to men. So, yeah, (laughs) you know, I guess data from dating sites uncovers some uncomfortable truths 
that maybe some of us have suspected, but, you know, kind of are pro- can be proven in the data. And I don't know. I, I kind of do- don't shy away from these uncomfortable truths, but some people might find them disturbing. I, 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 find, that, I find them disturbing. I found this, this section on race very disturbing, the racial preferences that people show in dating. And what were some of those? Well, that African-American women and Asian males face a big penalty in online dating. Again, like, you know, when we think of racism or discrimination, you know, most of the studies and most of the political activism has have focused on, you know, criminal justice system and the employment market. And those are obviously really important. But I think if anything, there's even more evidence for discrimination in the dating market definitely African-American women, the discrimination that they can face in online dating isn't talked about enough. And in many ways, because most of us to be in a relation, you know, most of us, one of our main goals in life is to be in a happy, committed relationship. So this prejudice, you know, a, a huge stain on society, I'd say. That's a like a social political issue that I don't even know how you would approach it because presumably it might be like unconscious or subconscious racial biases where they're not going with certain races, but how would you tell people to, you know, like feel attracted to something that they don't perceive that they're not attracted to, even if they don't realize it's related to racism? Like, I don't even know how you would have a conversation to change that. There's not an obvious solution to the issue because I, yeah, I think we correctly value people's right to you know, only date someone to date people they're most attracted to, but it's just kind of, I don't know, it's just, in, it's in, interesting and disturbing. Maybe we should be talked about more, I think, just because when I think of, you know, people talking about discrimination and racism, it's very rare that people focus on the dating market, but I think the evidence for it is overwhelming. Did you watch Love is Blind? I've heard about it. I, I don't. I didn't actually see it. It's like trying to tackle this question. I like really don't watch reality TV show, but I don't know why. I love that series. I was in my twenties. I was super into reality TV. I watched. I think all the dating shows. Like remember Eliminate and yeah. I don't know. There was one on MTV like Next where you just kind of go. They went like went through. Yeah, you people were rejected really quickly. It was. It was. I don't know. It was weird. I was on an episode of Millionaire Matchmaker once. That was that was a fun time. A takeaway I did take away from the dating section that I thought was inspiring was the role of predictions of happiness involving like the questions that you asked about the actual person rather than the other person. Basically that like the happiness might involve if you are happy or satisfied or content. Yeah, so this study that I talked about, the 85 scientists, like in general, they found it very, very difficult to predict romantic happiness. But if there is, there were anything, you know, if there were any variables that had predictive power, they were usually, they were mostly questions about yourself and your own mental state. So, you know, if someone says I'm satisfied with life, independent of my romantic partner or not depressed, I'm not feeling anxious, then they're more likely to say that they're happy in their relationship, significantly more likely to say they're happy in their relationship. So it kind of goes with this kind of classic advice that someone else can't make you happy until you're happy with yourself. I think there's a lot of truth to that in the data. You know, sometimes data 
kind of confirms these cliched pieces of wisdom that's not, that annoy me because I'm always like, yeah, how do you know that's true? But actually, once I see the data, I'm like, yeah, it actually is true. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMELANIE to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMELANIE to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Like most of the time, do you think there's a seed of truth to them or they wouldn't have become a cliche? No, I wouldn't say most of the time. So one of the things that I try to do with don't trust your gut is just say what the data said, whether it was like supported conventional wisdom or opposed conventional wisdom. Cause I think too many books, like they do either one or the other. They, they always say like, yeah, you know, follow your heart, do all these things that sound good. They read to me like Hallmark cards and I'm, and, and then too many books do the reverse where they're like, we're, you know, we're going to bust conventional wisdom and show you only things that are counterintuitive. And I really tried not to do this, to do that with this book, to just always go with the data. And, you know, I, I'd say, I'd say probably 60 or 70% of the time, the data tells us what we probably would have guessed. And then 30 to 40% of the time, it tells us something different than what we might've guessed. So that, that would be kind of my estimate based on after having written this book. And the po- point I take from that is you basically just can't listen to normal advice because we have no idea whether the advice is true or not. Cause you know, we, we 60 or 70% chance it's true, but 30 or 40% is not true. So you always have to go to the data either to confirm it. Oh yeah. You know, actually you can only, you only really can expect to be happy in a relationship once you're happy by yourself or sometimes it overrules what we might've thought in before looking at the data. Selfishly, I would love you to write a book on the data behind like all the different diets because there's so many dietary wars and it's so hard to see past biases and cherry picking and 
stuff like that. I was, that was, yeah, I don't know. I kind of, you know, don't trust you got, I tried to have a chapter about all the major questions of life, but obviously it's going to be biased by my own interests. And for whatever reason, I've just never been like a dieting person. I'm an obsessive sports fan. So instead of a pretty obvious chapter to on the data of dieting, I think which a lot of people would have liked more, I had a chapter on like how to ha- achieve athletic greatness, which I think didn't really register with that many people. But I'm the author of the book and I have to keep myself engaged. You get to decide. <laughs> yeah, I get to decide. And a book's such a pain in the ass that you can't really spend too much time on topics you're not passionate about. I cannot agree more. Like even with this show, I really only, you know, bring on things I'm really excited and interested in because, yeah. Did your publisher try to, did they want you to have in a diet chapter? No, they just want me to finish the book because I was taking so long that I think they're just like, yeah, whatever you say at this point, (laughs) we need to get this thing done. This is taking way too long. But the one thing I will say, I I did do a little research on dieting, although I, I didn't turn it into a whole chapter. And there does seem to be increasing evidence that there's tremendous variance in how, in what diets work for different people, probably having to do with our microbiome. So, you know, there, we kind of think that food, a food is either good or bad. So carbs are either good or bad. Chocolate's good or bad. Broccoli's good or bad. And my understanding is the research is moving towards an idea that what is good for one person may be bad for another person, which bad for one person may be good for another person. So there are some people who might gain weight eating bananas and other people, you know, more people probably would lose weight, you know, eating fruits and vegetables. So I think, and there's, there's some projects that claim that you can use machine learning and AI to figure out quickly what diet works for you. I think they're, they're not quite there yet, but I think that's where this is ultimately going to land, which is, you know, yeah, a, a personalized diet. And, and, you know, a lot of people who struggle with weight, maybe there, there may be foods that they think are really good for them. And they think they're really being healthy, healthy, and that may be good for the average person, but for reasons that aren't fully understood having to do with our guts, they're actually bad, bad for, for you and causing you to gain weight. That's good to hear. Cause that's pretty much what I've <laughs> been thinking. Actually, another book I'm reading right now is literally all about that. So I'm all about individuality. Don't think there's one right diet for everybody. And I do think it's a lot of factors like gut microbiome and glycemic control, like how you react to foods. And that might even relate to the microbiome. And yeah, there's just a lot of factors. So many other topics to touch on. Just while we're still in the the attraction world, you talk about an interesting experiment you did with yourself <laughs> with your you know physical appearance and how does physical appearance affect you know, our success in life. So what was your experience and thoughts on that? There are all these studies that these are other, these are also disturbing in my opinion that you can predict how far someone's going to advance in their career based on what they look like. Uh, So Alexander Todorov, University of Chicago, just shows people pictures of two of the candidates for elections. And he can predict with about 70% accuracy, which candidate won just by asking people which one looks more competent. So again, it's sad. We like to think that we're electing, you know, the person who has the best policy ideas or the best resume or the most compassion, but it seems like frequently we're just electing people who look the part. And there are other studies that, you know, the people who look more dominant are more likely to rise high at, in, in the military 
And people who are more baby-faced are more likely to get off on crimes. That's concerning. Yes, that's very concerning. But that's depressing. But there is something that maybe is a little more optimistic is that they've also done studies that how we look can vary a lot. So whether on all these dimensions, attractiveness, competence, trustworthiness, dominance, small changes in how we look can lead to large, small changes we make to our face can lead to large changes in how we're perceived. So that kind of motivated myself to, to do a study where I created using this app, FaceApp, it's artificial intelligence. I created like uh, about a hundred versions of my face. So, you know, this is what I look like. So th- there's a version of me, there's a version of me with, without glasses, with a beard, without a beard, with a goatee, no goatee, smiling, not smiling, gray hair, brown hair, pink hair in one of them. And then I just did it. And then I asked people, you know, how do I look on many dimensions? One of the, one of the main ones was competence. And it turns out there are big differences in how I'm perceived. And basically I look best. I found out when I have glasses and a beard, people just take me a lot more seriously, which I hadn't known before looking at the data and was pretty enlightening. And now I basically always have glasses and a beard. Oh, you did? You kept it? Yeah, I I keep the beard and keep the glasses based on the market research on myself. And I think people could do, I took it to the nerdiest, as I usually do, I did the nerdiest possible version of this, of this study, but people can do kind of a lazier version of it where you just download FaceApp or a similar app and create different versions of yourself and at least ask a bunch of people which looks best. So you may stumble on a look that you've never even considered that it turns out looks really good on you, right? So like, you know, let's say you've never grown your hair long and face app, you, you can just say, what do I look like with long hair? And you show it to people and they're like, wow, that looks amazing. Then you might consider growing your hair out just based on the data. When did you do that experiment? Yeah, it was probably about a year ago and I've definitely had a beard and glasses since. So sometimes I forget to put on my glasses and then someone like, who read my book is like, where are your glasses? You lied to us. So have you practically, and this actually relates to a larger question I can ask from it. The smaller question is, have you practically noticed a difference in, you know, maintaining this look? And then the bigger question from that is implementing these changes based on data. Like, I just feel like we are so in our own head and we have our own cognitive biases and our own perception of things. How can we actually tell, or does it even matter (laughs) if like the things we are doing are affecting what we're doing based on data? Yeah, it's it's a complicated question for sure. I don't know. I, I always, I give a lot of keynote addresses and I always like end with the joke that people if you think I look really competent, it's because I'm wearing glasses and a beard and you're all lab rats in my life experiment. But I haven't asked people afterwards or done a controlled experiment to see you know, how competent they view me with and without my glasses and my beard. But I think you know, collecting data and actually listening to the data, I mean, I didn't get too into the quantified self-movement in the book. You know, I was gonna have I was gonna go to a conference on it and then COVID hit and I wanted to have a chapter on quantified self-movement, which is people taking this really, really seriously of measuring their sleep very closely and their blood and their cardiovascular health and glucose levels and trying to really understand how their bodies work and make adjustments based on that. I think there, there is a danger 
in that approach is that, you know, as uh, Richard Feynman, the physicist says, the easiest person to fool is yourself. So there definitely is, you know, a danger in doing a study on your own. You know, one of the great things about a doctor is that they're less connected. They're not connected to the participant necessarily. And, you know, they don't, they don't allow doctors to treat their own kids usually because they care too much and they, you know, will, might, might give a biased analysis based on that. So that would be a criticism, a concern I'd have about the quantified self movement is it, it's so easy. You know, anyone who's been or done a lot data science knows how easy it is to trick yourself and be biased. And it's that much more easy, easy. It's that much easier to trick yourself when you care so much about the results, you know, when there's, when it's about your own, your own health, your own happiness, your own mood. So, you know, that, that, that is definitely a, a big concern. I wonder if it's more valid to go by how other people perceive you. Like if you could, rather than polling yourself about how you feel about the changes, if you had a poll of how everybody else sees you from the changes. I think that's right. I think that's one of the great things about friendships and relationships is that sometimes they can give you insights into yourself that other people don't give you. Although, you know, one of the people aren't always so honest and there are some things we don't want to hear. So, you know, I think I I was talking recently, someone said that there's a difference between a good short-term friend and a good long-term friend. Good short-term friend tells you what you want to hear and makes you feel good in the moment. But a good long-term friend sometimes tells you uncomfortable truths about yourself that you know, might make you angry and you go home and you say, why the hell did Alex just say that I'm picking Alex randomly? And he's not a, he's not a real person. Okay. He is a real person, but, uh, <laughs> but like, you know, you're, you're furious. You're like, why did I, why did that, you know, why did that asshole tell me that that was so mean, that was whatever. But then it kind of gets it. The advice gets into you and you make, you make a couple changes and you notice a few years later, you're like, thank God that person told me that because I was making these, these huge, you know, these huge errors in judgment. Nobody else wanted to tell me the, these uncom- uncomfortable truths. That's really interesting. And especially because I feel like for a lot of people, it might require time in the relationship for them to reach a point where they acquire that trait of telling them. Because in the beginning, I think in order to like groom a friendship or like there's a fear that you will lose a friend, if you tell them the truth, especially if it's like a new friend, it's like something you have to like grow into. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend, you know, your, your first meeting with a friend or a first date being like, oh, you know, you look terrible with that dress looks awful on you or, you know, but a couple of years down the road, could you say, you know, you're, you could dress a little better. You could, you know, I, I actually, when I started, when I, when I first wrote my book and I started getting some attention and I was on YouTube, you know, podcasts and it's on YouTube. And I start, I religiously read all my YouTube comments and people are like, that's the last thing you should do because people on YouTube are so mean, but I actually found it very useful for the very reason we're discussing, which is at least they're honest. And people are telling me things that I otherwise didn't know. So they'll say things like, you know, your teeth are yellow. Nobody tells you that in real life because they don't want to be mean. But having gotten that feedback, I got whitening strips. <laughs> you know, but it, things like this are so useful, but nobody wants to be, be the one to tell you, right? 
That's a really good reframe. That's really interesting. Like maybe the way to yeah get these truths about yourself, especially with social media, is to let it filter in that way. I mean, some some of it's just useless. It's like people are just mean, and you know they tell you things that aren't really helpful. But you know, occasionally they'll tell you you um too much, or you say you know too much, or your teeth are yellow. That's that is useful information because it's probably affecting how you're you know coming across. Well, going back to something you touched on, so you do love sports a lot. I hadn't read the book, but I was familiar. I'd heard an interview. Is it David Epstein, the sports gene? Yeah, 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 sports. I heard him on Peter Tia and thought that was really fascinating. Yeah, so <laughs> the big question. So when it comes to sports, is it mostly genetic? Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's, David Epstein has this book on the sports gene about how genetic various sport, how genetic sports are and it's another, you know, uncomfortable truth about the world because we like to think that if you're, you know, passionate and hardworking, you know, you care enough, you can, you know, do anything. That's what we like telling kids. And David Epstein's like, no, actually, there are particular genes that make you run fast and make you a good baseball player. There are all these things like a baseball player. Baseball players have better than twenty twenty vision. Almost all baseball players. Like it's kind of this secret gift, you, you know, you're kind of like, well, why is that player so much better at hitting than, you know, than somebody else? And it turns out they were just gifted extraordinarily eyesight. And, you know, the, the David Essing talks about the body types that are good for different sports. So swimmers tend to have really long torsos and short legs like Michael Phelps, very useful for swimming. And it's kind of depressing, the book, but I realized there's actually differences in different sports and how genetic they are. I actually figured a way to test this, which is basically how many identical twins rise to the top of a sport. Because identical twins, of course, have a share 100% of the genetic material. So if a sport is really, really genetic, then there will just be all kinds of tons of pairs of identical twins at the top. So basketball is an example of that, where there have just been so many more identical twins in basketball than other sports. And that's because basketball is based a ton on height, which is one of the most genetic traits there is. So each inch of height doubles someone's chances of becoming a professional basketball player. So basketball's, you know, just flooded with identical twins. But then there are some sports that don't have a lot of identical twins. So equestrian riding, diving, alpine skiing, a few sports like that. Where, and that suggests that genetics play a, a lesser role. So, you know, th- those sports may be better bets if you aren't genetically gifted. So, you know, the best equestrian rider in the world may just be someone who's obsessed with horses from a very young age and devotes themselves to the craft. Whereas the best basketball player in the world or the best track and field runner in the world is someone who, yeah, devote a lot of time to the craft, but also had to be given these extraordinary genetic gifts, which are so important in those sports. Hi, friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits, as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. 
There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof Coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, (laughs) drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof Coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee and use the coupon code MELANIEAVALON to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit. But sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. How do you determine if the data is actually powered to find the answer? Because like presumably, I mean, I don't know how many equestrian riders there are, but I imagine there's a lot less than basketball players. Like, how do you know if you have enough data points? If I had like, if I wrote it as an academic paper, I would have had confidence intervals and more statistical analysis. But, you know, writing it as a popular book, I didn't want to bog people down. But, you know, you do test to basically say, is there a statistically significant difference? And there definitely is. It turns out one of the reasons I focused on sports, people are like, you know, you could do this analysis for other arenas of life as well. But I focused on sports because... There have been so many athletes, in, in part because of the Olympics, you know, which happens every four years and has the, you know, tons of athletes from around the world, that the sample sizes get pretty large, where if I tried to study you know, the genetic 
component to being a billionaire, being president, or even being senator, sample sizes would have been too small to really do the analysis. So that's another uh, one of the reasons I focus on sports is because I'm obsessed with sports. And another reason is because the sample sizes are big enough to get statistical power. Sports have never been a thing I wanted to do at all. So I've always thought, well, I haven't like actively thought about this a lot, but if I were to think about it, I probably would think, oh yeah, it's genetic. I I wonder if going back to like the cognitive biases, I wonder if when you do want to do it, if that's when it seems less genetic because you, you feel like if you just practice enough, you could do it. Like, I wonder what the role of having a passion is for making something seem more genetic or not. Cause like you wanted to, um, did you want to do baseball? Yeah. Yeah. I, I always say I want to baseball, but I would have settled for being a professional basketball player as well. You know, I, I loved all sports. So I would have, you know, would have taken pretty much anything, but uh, baseball was my biggest love as a kid. And yeah, I, I definitely, I, I don't know. I, I feel like whether you think something is doable, you know, partly maybe it's connected to how passionate you are about it. But I think there's also, it's also just connected to personality and, you know, talk about things like fixed mindset and growth mindset. So some people feel like their skill set is set in stone. And, you know, if they're not good at something at the age of 10, they're not going to be good at it at all. And other people have more of a growth mindset and think, I'm not good at this yet. Give me time and I'll learn to get good at it. And that seems to be a predictor of success in a lot of arenas as well, having a growth mindset. And is that genetic, having a growth mindset or not? I think there's a little, one of the things you learn in genetic research is everything's at least a little genetic. You know, I don't think there's a gene or 10 genes that say, you know, code in your brain, have a growth mindset, but to the extent it's connected to, you know, things like happiness and optimism and which, which are very genetic, uh, it probably does have you know, at least some genetic component. Well, that goes into another topic just as far as genetics and the potential for things. So the role of parenting, you had some really, really interesting findings. How much of their daily choices about how they raise their kids is affecting how their kids turn out in the end? Yes, there are all these studies on the effects of parenting and there are different ways to do it. Some Studies involve adoption. So I talk about a famous study of Korean adoptees where the kids were essentially randomly assigned to households and we could really measure, okay, you know, do, do kids who are randomly assigned to the same household end up similar or, or not? Or do biological kids who were raised in different households end up similar? And there are also studies of twins, as I mentioned, which allow using some math to disentangle nature versus nurture. I think the major finding from studies on nature versus nurture, there, there are a couple of big findings in nature versus nurture on parenting. One is that nature matters a lot. So genetics, just really, really important for just about any outcome you could think to measure happiness, political views, religiosity, income, education, nature, really, really important. You know, identical twins who are raised apart, they meet for the first time at the age of 30, and they have all these shocking things in common. Nature really matters. The other thing is that the overall effect of the environment is pretty small. It's not zero, but it's not that much. So, you know, a lot of parents think if I raise my kids right, they're going to for sure be happy. Or if I kid raise my kids right, they're going to be a brain surgeon, or they're going to be the next Bill Gates. 
and there's that's clearly not true and that there's just not that much you can't move the dial that much as a parent that said there is some evidence that maybe one parenting decision that people make may be the most important by a pretty wide margin and that's where they raise their kids so there's this data from tax records where they've studied kids from the same families you kind of control for genetics who are raised in different areas. So maybe there was a 10-year age gap, and one of the kids had their formative years in Los Angeles, and another of the kids had their formative years in Seattle. And it turns out when you look at the data, there are big differences. Certain cities, certain metropolitan areas, certain even blocks within a neighborhood, kids who are raised there turn out to do much better. So, so and, and, and why is that? You know, What is it about you know, an area that leads to successful kids, many of the predictors of a good neighborhood were surprising to me. There are things like the number of two-parent households in that neighborhood, percent of people who return their census forms, percent of college graduates in that neighborhood. It seems to be have a lot to do with the adults in that neighborhood and basically the adults being good people, good role models. Kids kind of model themselves after the people around, you know, after the people they're, they're exposed to. And if you expose your kids to people who are pretty good at life, you're more likely to have good outcomes. You know, I think parents maybe overestimate the effects they're going to have on their kids and underestimate the effects that other people they're exposing their kids to will have on them, in part because kids rebel against their parents. So kids may think their parents are the coolest people in the world for one period, and then later on they think their kids are the biggest losers in the world. But the other people they see you know, they're more likely to think, yeah, that person's cool. I want to be like them. Uh, so I kind of recommend parents outsource the parenting process a little bit. Expose your kids to people you want them to turn out to be like. What's interesting about it is that factor of environment is literally, because we're, we're often talking about like genetics versus epigenetics and epigenetics is the whole thing about environmental influences. So literally this one choice decision is, I mean, in a way environment, like, and then it makes it even more broad and all encompassing because, you know, maybe we're saying it's just the neighborhood, but it's not really just the neighborhood because that would automatically inform, you know, so many other things. Which makes me wonder, because I thought about this a lot when I was reading the parenting book, and I think about it in similar situations in my life, because you talk about how, you know, parents stress so much about all of these decisions that they have to make for their kids, but really, like, it doesn't have that much of an influence in the end. My question is, does the collective whole, though, of all of the decisions have an impact? So, like maybe this one decision that you make raising your kid doesn't have a huge impact on its own. But if you're applying that mindset of trying to make the best decision for every decision, then does that have an impact? Yeah. I mean, I think the evidence from the adoptees suggests it doesn't have a huge impact because, you know, presumably some of the parents were much more hands-on and reading every parenting book and doing research on every topic and trying to get every decision right. And some of the parents were more freewheeling and, you know, maybe they read Dr. Spock's book, which suggests that, you know, just follow your intuition. Don't worry so much. Don't try to, don't, you don't need to get every decision right. And it seems the evidence suggests that adoptees exposed to very different parents, uh, adopted parents just don't make that much of a difference. So 
I think, you know, it's not that parents make no difference. And some parents may say, well, I don't care. Yeah, sure. Even if I'm a great parent, I can only raise my kid's income by 30% or I can only decrease their risk of depression by 5%. But that's still enough for me to want to do it because, you know, it's the number one thing I care about how my kids turn out. So even if it has a a smaller effect than I might have guessed, I still want to do everything in my power to help my kids. Although one thing I never really, one kind of complication with the whole, you know, doing everything in your power to rate, to help your kids is because genetics are so important. If you really were doing everything in your power to help your kids, you'd probably get sperm and egg donors because, you know, cause think about it. You're not like, you're unlikely to be the happiest person on the planet or, you know, have the happiest genetics on the planet or the most intelligent genetics on the planet or the best looking genetics on the planet. So realistically, the best thing you probably could do would be that. But, you know, I I think the fact that so many parents don't do that shows that parenting is not all about maximizing your kid's outcome at the expense of everything else. You know, part of what we're doing is sharing who we are with our kids and sharing our particular values and connecting with them and loving them, you know, no matter how they turn out. And, you know, there's more, I think just about any parent, when they think about it, would have to admit that they, they're not just maximizing their child's, you know, happiness or success or wealth. You know, they're also, you know, doing other things. And, and I think that's okay. I guess we'll see how that goes, especially with like the future of gene editing, which, you know, would be kind of like that, I don't want to say a happy medium, but it would be, <laughs> it would be still the, you know, parents, but then, you know, making genetic changes. Yeah. You know, some people say once it starts, there's just going to be no stopping it because, uh, you know, even if, uh, you know, at, at both the country level and the individual level. So let's say United States says we're not going to approve gene editing, but then Singapore says we're going to approve it. Is the United States going to just sit back while Singapore has all these super babies? And then at the individual level, you might say, well, I don't believe in gene editing, but then all your friends are editing their babies and having these you know, designer babies that are great looking and really, really smart and happy. And, you know, are you going to just say, well, it's, I'm, I'm not going to give my kids those same gifts. I don't know. I, I, I think I, I kind of agree that, that there's something to the idea that once it starts, it's, there's just no stopping it. Happiness. Is that genetic? Yeah, there definitely is a huge genetic component to happiness and mental health problems, depression, neuroticism, anxiety, you know, it's not as genetic as height or, you know, IQ, but it does have a big genetic component. So I loved the chapter you had on, was it called the Mappiness Project? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Mappiness Project, yeah. Yeah. So could you tell listeners a little bit about that project and what they found? Yeah. So I didn't know about the Mappiness Project before I started researching this book. It was, it's by, co-founded by two British economists, George McCarran and Susanna Murado, and they ping people at different times. They, they ping people at different times of the day and they ask them s- some basic questions. Who are you with? What are you doing? And how happy are you? You know, zero to 100. So you, know, you could imagine, you know, if you were participating in this project right now, you'd probably say I'm by myself and I'm listening to a podcast and I, you know, I'm a hundred happiness because this is so fascinating or I hope. <laughs> you bet it is. <laughs> but, you know, and, and then, Later in the day, you'd say, um, 
with my romantic partner and, you know, we're eating dinner and I'm a 60 out of 100. And uh, you keep on doing this. 60,000 people did this multiple times to the point that it 3 million happiness points. And they could answer all these really, really interesting questions that obviously everybody cares about, like what activities make people happy, what people make people happy. They could even do things because it was done with iPhones, even if they didn't ask people, where are you? They knew people's GPS. So they could answer questions like, are there certain environments that make us happy? They didn't ask people what's the weather outside, but they knew what time it was and where people were. So they could say, what kind of weather makes people happy? So in my opinion, it was a revolutionary project that taught us all kinds of things about happiness. Now, one of the things, the main things that it taught us is the things that make people happy are pretty freaking obvious. (laughs) Being with a romantic partner, nice days, being in nature, particularly near water, certain activities, socializing, having sex, not rocket science. But I think there's profundity in the obviousness of the data because so many of us do these things that don't make us happy and we don't do these obvious things that do make us happy. So I thought, you know, it's, it's really important to keep in mind how simple some of the things that reliably give people happiness are. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits The longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the U.S. is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives. Dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. Yeah, I've been asking, because probably a reason I have this show is just because I love learning things and like sharing them with people. I've asked so many people the question of what do they think were the top two things that made people happy? One was sex, right? And then two was going to a show, which made me happy because that's like my favorite thing. (laughs) So that was fantastic. People are all over the place. You think these things are obvious, like, oh yeah, sex would give the most pleasure, I guess. But, you know, I do the same thing when I give a talk. I say, what's the number one activity? And people say, you know, relaxing, eating. Some people even say watching TV, like lying on the couch. And those activities, you know, tend to be actually below average scoring activities. And I I very rarely, you know, very rarely does somebody say gardening, which is one of the top activities or 
go even going to a show doesn't you know usually score that high. I think people might not say sex because they're they're feeling sheepish. <laughs> yeah, but you know there is there are some systematic biases that we have. I I did a study motivated by the Mapness Project with my friend Spencer Greenberg, where we asked people kind of what you, what you said you did with your friends, but more systematic. We just asked people rank these forty activities on how happy they make people, and you know people. There was a correlation. People kind of got that, you know, sex would score higher than doing chores or that socializing with friends would score higher than waiting on a line, you know, and they, they're right about that. But there were definitely some activities that people, you know, really thought made people happy that don't make people happy. Uh, conversely, some activities that people thought don't make people happy that do make people really happy. One of the biases seemed to be that People think that lazy activities make people happy and they really don't. So, you know, lying on your couch, watching Netflix, playing computer games, relaxing, you know, all these things, people seem to think, think that they give people a lot of happiness. When you actually ask people, you know, right in the moment, how happy are you? People who are doing these things tend to say they're pretty unhappy. Well, I was thinking first for the sleep one, I was thinking that if people are answering that, then it's when they're not asleep. There are some imperfections in the project, I would say. They do give people time to respond. So if you get beeped, you can say sixty, you know, up to 60 minutes later, how were you feeling when you were beeped and what were you doing? So that could explain some of the sleep one. You know, I think even so, you know, do people know how happy they are when they're uncon- when they're not fully conscious? You know, I think... There were some issues, you know, it wasn't a perfectly designed study in part because there's no such thing as a perfectly designed study. And a lot of activities were grouped together that I thought maybe shouldn't be grouped together. So like shopping and errands, two completely different things. Traveling and commuting. Oh, oh, those are way different. Yeah. Yeah. There's a difference between being on the subway at 8 a.m. and being in the Caribbean. (laughs) with your friends by the beach or something. Uh, so it wasn't a, a perfect study, but don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. It still taught us, I think, more than we've ever known about happiness. And I'm sure there there have been, I talk about other projects that have been motivated by mappiness. And so I think people, more and more people are, are creating these apps. And I think within, you know, 10 years, we're going to know, know way more about all, all you know, what, what really makes people happy. I really thought the findings on alcohol and happiness were interesting. What were some of them? Yeah, that was a study from McCarran and Geiger, and they studied the effects of drinking. And they found that, maybe not surprisingly, uh, drinking does give a boost in mood. But the interesting thing was it only gives a boost in mood for certain activities, and they tend to be the activities that people don't tend to use alcohol for. So drinking gives a boost in mood when you're like doing chores, so you're doing the dishes, you're going to be much happier if you're doing the dishes and have a glass of wine or you're in the shower. But booze doesn't give a big mood boost when you're doing something exciting, having sex, socializing, you know, being out with friends more generally, then you don't really get a mood boost. And of course, that's, that's exactly how most people use alcohol. It's like, I'm having so much fun with my friends out at the club I'm going to drink to make this an even more epic night. And the data suggests that basically doesn't work, that you're going to have fun with your friends with or without alcohol. But, you know, maybe 
you know, obviously a huge danger giving this advice because a lot of people do have problems with alcoholism. And I, I don't want to encourage people who shouldn't be utilizing this strategy, but I who tend not to have, you know, either m- myself or my family have problems with alcoholism. I have occasionally found myself having a glass of wine when I'm doing the dishes based on the, the this, this mappiness study. It's so funny. Yeah, I've been sharing that that with a lot of people. And I found it interesting. I don't know if it was that study. One of them was talking about next day happiness effect from alcohol. It, it was counterintuitive. Yeah, it actually didn't have a big effect. So I would have thought, you know, yeah, you're really happy when you drink, but the next day you pay for it and you feel horrible. And they found that that's not actually the, the true, that you actually, you go back to pretty much where you would have been on average. You know, certainly sometimes, you know, we've all had a horrible hangover and maybe if you have, may, you know, may also be a limitation of the study that if you had eight, if you have eight drinks, you're too drunk to answer the mappiness survey. <laughs> There, there are all kinds of limitations, you know, with this this methodology. But uh, you know, on balance, you know, I, I think I took from this study that, with a huge caveat, huge, huge, huge caveat, that alcohol can be dangerous to people with an addictive personality. There definitely is a rule. There is a role for alcohol and perhaps other substances in, as well in boosting your mood. But we probably use it wrong by, you know, trying to, you know, getting drunk on Saturday night with our friends maybe isn't actually a great mood booster. Like I love wine and I have a nightly glass of wine. And out of curiosity, I went a year without any wine because I just felt like, I mean, I'm like a very happy person. That's another question about stats on happiness. You know, they say like, (laughs) they say, I don't even know who they is, but (laughs) you know, they say you're happier without these substances. So I was like, okay, I like won't drink for a year and see if I'm happier. And at the end, I was like, I'm, I feel happier with my, <laughs> like with my. Oh, with wine. Yeah. My parents, you know, the usual parental advice is always like stay away from substances. And my parents have told, I think all three of their kids, you know, me and my sister and my brother that we could use substances a little more because a lot of times we go out to dinner and we're the teetotalers and, you know, my parents are like, no, you you know, have a glass of wine. So I think all the siblings are, yeah, this, we're, we're like, yeah, definitely de- my sister in particular. And she like, you know, n- almost never has a glass of wine. My parents are always like, come on, have a drink, lighten up, relax. You know, and I, I, th- I think the data says that's, that's not crazy, but of course, you know, th- there's this huge caveat that you know, whatever percent of the population, I don't know off, off the top of my head does have tendency towards alcoholism and they have, you know, a glass of wine and they soon have, you know, a whole bottle of vodka. Just looking at like the super centenarian studies and like the long-lived cultures, they all, except for the Seventh-day Adventists, include alcohol, which I find interesting. Although there's a recent study that the super centenarians are largely due to uh, clerical errors. Like they've done studies that when birth, certi- when birth certificates became more official, then the rates of centenarians and super centenarians just like dropped precipitously. I saw some stuff about that. Yeah. So, and, and, and even some of the areas that supposedly produced a lot of people who lived a very long time were areas that just had really bad record keeping. <laughs> so, so I think we're going to have to reevaluate some of the analysis of what leads to long life, but I, I, I have read some of the same things you've read. 
know, the, so the importance of social connection. And so we'll, 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 I think, I think it remains to be seen which of these findings survive better record keeping. One last topic we could touch on. I'm curious. So your job, so success in business. So what you're doing, is that something that normally leads to business success? Yeah. So I, in some ways it is, well, one of the, you know, I talk about the data from tax records. So basically just studies in the last three or four years, they've analyzed, uh, de-identified tax records of, you know, the entire top 1%, top 0.1%. And they're really telling us, okay, what it takes to get rich. And, you know, what, one of the things, you know, there's a sentence in one of the, the major studies that the typical rich American is the owner of a regional business, such as an auto dealership or beverage distribution company. That, that really surprised me. I, you know, I hadn't really thought of, you know, I, I guess if I thought about, you know, auto dealers, you know, we, sometimes we associate with great wealth, beverage distribution companies, I knew basically nothing about. It's all these basically local monopolies. Basically, you want a business, you want to own a business that allows for a local monopoly. I recently celebrated my 40th birthday and my dad gave a speech. Oh, happy late birthday. Thanks. My dad gave a speech where he just roasted me for exactly what you're saying. He's like, you don't do any of the things you suggest in your book. <laughs> he started with saying, Seth says that the path to wealth is owning an auto dealership. Seth doesn't own an auto dealership. And, you know, the, the path to happiness is not watching sports. And Seth watches more sports than anybody I know. And <laughs> he just went through all the things and explained how I'm not living my advice. But I, I do think that being an independent creator, which I currently am, actually is not a crazy path to making a lot of money because you can have a local monopoly through your brand. So if you build a lot of fans, you can make you know a, a good living. You do have to get lucky, which is why I have a whole chapter on how to get luckier according to the data. A lot of people want to be you know a successful author, a successful podcaster, but you know I think if in many ways, it's a better path than being an employee, which the data says is is very unlikely. You're very unlikely to make a lot of money as an employee because the owner of the business kind of is going to take just such a big share of of, of any profit that you produce. So, you know, I, I guess I, I am following my advice in that I'm I'm not currently an employee. And I have made, you know, this catches me by surprise, but I was a data scientist at Google and I've actually probably made two to three times more as an independent creator on average than I was as a data scientist at Google, because, you know, as an independent creator, I do get to keep, you know, more of my product than, than you do as, a, as an employee for even a great company like Google. And why did you leave Google? You, you shared that story. I signed this book contract and I just wanted to focus more on my writing. So, and the book, contract was paying me more than my Google salary at that time. So I just wanted to give it a shot. I was pretty young. I was like, when I did that, I was about 30. And I'm like, I'm, I, you know, this, this is my one shot to do something I'm really passionate about and really love. So. Oh, that's amazing. Wow. You had said something about like Google picking a shade of blue. Oh, that has nothing to do with me. That was, no, that was a designer quit. A designer quit the company at Google, uh, quit Google because they, to decide what blue to show their users on their like on links, they did all these random experiments on you know forty different shades of blue, and the designer was so furious. He's like, "This is not art. This is commerce. I'm quitting my job." Okay, that's so funny. 
Well, it was motivating speaking to that concept. Because I think for a lot of people, especially if they are in a typical nine to five job or a salary job, and I'm not saying, and you talk about this, like there are people who obviously do make a lot of money in those, you know, avenues, but there seems to be a lot of potential for, you know, even more being self-employed. Yeah, but you got to hustle your ass off. No kidding. It was interesting to me to read because going back to like the fan thing, I was like, oh, well, this is like kind of exactly what I am doing. So maybe that's why it's working. <laughs> like the, um, you know, cultivating your own brand so you're not imposed on by other conflicts and competition and things like that. But it was very motivating because you're saying how like in the media with like self-starters and entrepreneurs, the media makes it seem like it's people like really young that are doing this, but really it's older and like you have like a long time to potentially still make it. Yeah. There are these studies on successful entrepreneurs and the average age of a successful entrepreneur is about 45, even in tech, which everyone thinks is, everyone thinks that you have to be really, really young to be a successful tech entrepreneur. And it's just not true. And yeah, I think a lot of people find that encouraging you know, that, that a 60 year old entrepreneur has three times higher success rate than a 30 year old entrepreneur. And most people don't think of a 60-year-old entrepreneur. So I think that is in part. Like somebody starting at 60 or somebody who? Yeah, someone starting a business at 60, yeah. Wow, that is really motivating. Yeah, so that's motivating for just about everybody, I guess, except for people in their 80s. Do you know if there's a, a sex there? Like, is that just men? They didn't break it down by gender, no. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Well, a unifying question that kind of brings everything together is applying this data personally. So like for me, like when I read the happiness chapter and it was saying that people are happy, like in warm weather and not cold, like I love cold and I like, don't like warm. And like, so there's some things, and that's just a very specific example, but there's some things where it's just like, not me, for example. So in those situations, if the data just literally doesn't apply, like I, it's just like, not what I like, does it still apply a little or do you have to throw out stuff that just for whatever reason doesn't apply to you? Definitely there's individual variation in in everything and including what makes us happy. And I think as more of these projects like Mappiness are created, maybe the next level is to explore more of the individual variation. That said, I think there is a danger in thinking that you're so unique. One of my favorite studies is They've compared introverts and self-described introverts and extroverts, the mood boost they get from being around other people. And the mood boost is exactly the same. Introverts get just as big a mood boost as extroverts do. Even though if you asked introverts, they say that they predict they would get a lower mood boost because they think, you know, they're, they, they like solitude, they crave solitude. So that shows that there can be some danger in thinking, you know, yeah, well, everybody else likes gardening, but I like watching Netflix or, you know, everybody else likes hanging out with their friends, but I like being by myself or, you know, even everybody else likes 80 degrees and sunny, but I like seasons. You know, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm sure there are some people who, you know, do like more of the cold, do like seasons, but we do have to be careful. I think thinking we're, we're unique in these arenas, probably, you know, and, and I think anybody would be wise to at least try the things that make the average person happy, give them more of a shot, even if we think they wouldn't work for us. That was a really fascinating thing that you talked about, about 
like the memory of happiness and how it might actually be having an effect on drug trials with medications because people don't accurately remember. Exactly. Anytime we're trying to make sense of our happiness, we have to keep in mind that we're, we have terrible memories when it comes to what made us happy. And I talk about these studies of colonoscopies where they ask people during the colonoscopy, they say how much pain they're in. And then after the fact, they say, how much pain were you in? And there's almost no correlation between how much pain they were actually in and how much pain they remember being in. And I think, you know, so all of us that, that, yes, that's another reason to kind of distrust our own intuition around what makes us happy that we have these faulty memories, you know, and you might, uh, you know, I'm not picking on you for the weather thing. I'm sure, you know, I, I suspect you do have a different reaction to the weather than, than maybe the average person, but maybe, you know, you remember some glorious winter days, you know, and you forget glorious summer days. I don't, I'm, I'm not saying that that's true, but you know, we do have to be careful in, in trying to recognize patterns between you know, our activities, our environment and our happiness. We do have to keep in mind, we can very easily misremember our prior, prior moods. I could not agree more. Like the one thing I always say is that the only thing I know is that I know nothing. And I always mention this on the show, but ever since I read the split brain patient studies where they would show like people who had some sort of disconnection between the hemispheres of their brain, like show them things that only one part of their brain saw and then ask them why they did things that they did. And like the language part of the brain would just make up stories about it. I was like, okay, I know nothing like literally. So well, thank you so much. This has been absolutely incredible. The last question that I ask every single guest on this show, and it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is, and it actually relates to something that was found in the happiness data about the present moment. What is something that you're grateful for? It's hard to pick one because I'm grateful for so many things, but certainly my family, even though I claim that in the book that parents don't matter that much. I definitely feel gratitude towards the parents I have and the siblings I have and the cousins I have. Just have a very warm, loving, nurturing, supportive, non judgmental family. And I feel very, very lucky because a lot of people do not have that. I love that so much. I literally, when I read your acknowledgments, because I remember when I wrote my acknowledgments for my book, it was a very similar vibe. Like, I feel like you and I are grateful for very similar things in that regard. Well, thank you so much. I so, like I said, so thoroughly enjoyed your work. I've been just telling everybody about it. Do you have another book coming out? Not in the near future, but I probably will write another book at some point. Well, I will eagerly look forward to it. How can people best follow your work? I'm on Twitter, Seth S underscore D. That might be the best way. Okay, awesome. Well, I'll put links to everything in the show notes. Thank you again so much and enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, Melanie. Thanks, Seth. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at melanieavalon.com. And always remember, you got this.